Welcome to Ottawa Valley Community Church, where we simply want to help you encounter Jesus, be transformed, and share His love. Of Lent. That's the weeks uh, leading up to Easter. And we've been tracking through on a little series, uh, looking at the steps of Jesus between um, his uh, Last Supper and his time in the Garden of Gethsemane. And now we're going to look at the trials of Jesus. Uh, after Jesus was arrested, of course, uh, he went uh, essentially on trial and under, underwent really what, what can only be described as six uh, incredibly brutal um, and painful, what at least it would be for us, experiences of being under trial. Um, He'd just been arrested, remember? He'd just been praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, He'd been uh, arrested. You know, his disciples sort of tried to fight for him, Peter did, and took a hack at the high priest's servant's ear, and Jesus healed him and, you know, gave a little teaching in that moment, but then he sort of goes off in shackles between Roman guards and is, is taken somewhere and something's about to happen and the disciples don't know what that is but we know looking at the story and it's actually a bit of work to piece it together between the Gospels uh, but to see that Jesus essentially uh, went to trial. He essentially went to be questioned so that they could decide what to do with him. Now they had a really clear intent before they ever started. They knew they wanted him out of the way. They wanted him killed but ultimately uh, they needed to somehow justify that uh, to themselves and so there were uh, six trials, uh, three sort of religious trials. Uh, the first one is before Annas, uh, who is actually not even the high priest. Uh, he was sort of called the high priest. He was actually deposed some years before, but he's some person of influence. Uh, then there's this trial before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. That's sort of the priestly uh, leadership at the time. Then there's a trial that they sort of redo that one with a few more people around in the morning because there's rules. You can't really uh, convict somebody when it's dark outside by sort of Jewish law. You have to do that in the daylight. So they put him through this brutal questioning and trial. And then when the, the light comes on and daytime happens, they, uh, they hit him again with another round of it, right? And then uh, they ultimately say, hey, we find him guilty. We're going to send him off um, to Pilate and let the Romans actually kill him and let the Romans deal with it. And so he has a trial before Pilate. And Pilate uh, is unsatisfied with the conversation and sends him off to Herod. Uh, who's, uh, who's sort of the kingly figure, and, and he has a trial before Herod, and then back to Pilate for more conversation, maybe a little bit of a more private conversation. But Jesus just put through the ringer over this period of time and questioned, and, uh, and it, it's an incredible uh, experience. When we look at the trials um, and, and try to piece this picture together from the scriptures, and we're piecing together pieces from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and trying to figure out the sequence, and it's quite a bit of work to put it all together and see what's happening. But in terms of how we actually get something out of the trial, and, and in general how we get something out of the scriptures, is we often sort of place ourselves in the scene, don't we? And of course, you and I being who we are, we really want to make ourselves the hero, don't we? We want to put ourselves as Jesus in the scene, and, and we want to sort of stand over the scene maybe and, uh, and speak judgment over all of these brutal things that people said to Jesus and did to Jesus, and we want to sort of say, look at how bad that was. But the reality is, is that when we look at the scriptures and if we really want to get something out of them, the best thing that we can do is we can place ourselves as the villains in the scene. 
we place ourselves in these courtrooms, in these rooms, and we are going to have to look at it and say, yeah, I'm the high priest who's questioning Jesus. I'm the soldier who struck him. I'm Peter who is cowering in the corner, sort of wanting to defend him, but also terrified and just curious about what's going on, and I'm, I'm going to deny him. We place ourselves in the scene as the villains, and that's ultimately how we're going to get the most out of it. And, and theologically, that's just what makes sense. Theologically, every human being is responsible for the death of Jesus, right? We who received the gift of his salvation are also responsible uh, for his death. And we see writer after writer after writer in the early church through the reformers into now who acknowledge that theologically. And so theologically, we were there putting Jesus on trial. And then there's a reality that every day you and I put Jesus on trial again. Every day we put him on trial again. When his moral code challenges our behavior, uh, every time uh, his nature comes into conflict with my sinful instincts, every time uh, I my identification with the body of Christ looks like it's going to shave a little something off my own personal identity that I kind of like, <laughs> right? Uh, every time uh, Jesus' authority challenges my personal desire for autonomy, to have my own way, to make my own decisions, to make the world as I want it, in those moments, uh, we put Jesus on trial all over again. You know, we, we could just accept his authority and obey Sometimes we acknowledge his authority and just straight up rebel. But the reality is, is that what we do in our minds is we put him on trial, we play games, we argue with his teachings, uh, we quibble, we, we dance, we play little legal games, we fence, we dip, we duck, we dive, we dodge, trying to somehow carve out a way that says that I'm right and what I want is right and what he wants uh, isn't right. And I think the best uh, way to get something out of this text is to just acknowledge that that's happening inside of us when we encounter Jesus and when he speaks to us and wants to challenge us and wants to change us. And each of these six trials, it, it, it's so fascinating. Each of these six trials speaks to a different way in which we often challenge Jesus' authority. Uh, there are very slightly different questions asked in each of them and, and different responses in Jesus' heart and different characters on the scene. And as we unpack the detail of each trial, and we're just going to do the first one today, the trial under Anna. Um, we see that, that something in each of these trials mirrors something in our posture, mirrors a game we play, mirrors something that we do to, to dodge God's authority. So I want to just start by praying that, that we're going to just have the humility together to look at this trial and to put ourselves on the scene and to just be honest about that. Uh, Father, we come as we just did um, around the table, we confess that we're sinners we confess that we so often want our own way. We resist your teaching. We resist your authority. We fear others more than we fear you. There's so many postures that we take that, that hinder us as you uh, call us to be your disciples. And so as we go through this story, Lord, I just ask that you would use it to transform us and to challenge us. 
and to call us to be more like you. We thank you for your word. We're grateful for it. Would it transform us, we pray, in your holy name. Amen. So this trial before Annas, it's, it's fascinating. Um, one, we don't really know who Annas is other than we have some uh, story uh, in, in other literature, extra-biblical literature, that says that he was the high priest over Israel, uh, serving in the temple at one period of time. But somewhere around A.D. 13, uh, he was deposed and his son-in-law Caiaphas became the high priest. But for some reason, after Jesus is arrested and all of the altercation in the garden and he's taken bound by guards and, and sort of hustled off uh, into Jerusalem, they probably would have gone down the Kidron Valley and around to the north if they ended up in Caiaphas's or in Annas's place or in some sort of wealthy residence of a rich person. They would have gone into the north of the city where all those residences were. And there have been a few priestly dwellings that have been excavated. So we could actually, I should have put a picture. You can see some incredible tile mosaics uh, of some of these places, just so we know that this cast of characters is real, that this isn't a made-up comic book or something like this. These are real events with real people that happen, but for some reason, Jesus goes up to this person who isn't the high priest's place, uh, and he's questioned by him as though all of those soldiers and, and all of those sort of people who were dignitaries who arrested Jesus wanted to go and do this side trial. It's almost like, let's go talk to Trump, and then we'll talk to Biden or something like that. We don't know what's going on in that, in that setting. We don't know what it's all about, but for some reason they go to Annas. He has some authority, some sort of uh, political position. Peter is skulking along behind. We see that in one of the other texts. And, and he comes and it reads like this. It says, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? And Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. And I just think it's fascinating in this moment, this first trial, uh, this trial by, I don't know whether Annas was kind of like a pretender of a high priest or whether he had that title, the high priest emeritus. I don't know, but for some reason he has some authority, he has some voice, and he begins to question Jesus' teaching and question his disciples. And the reality is, is that when Jesus... Uh, comes to us with something that he wants to teach us, something that he wants us to know. When his authority comes into conflict with our own, very often that's through the scriptures, very often uh, where we go to find our out, where we go to find our way of finding freedom, finding our own little bit of authority as we go and we begin to quibble with the scriptures. And that authority of the scriptures is the first issue uh, that is really on trial here in the story of Jesus. Friedrich Nietzsche uh, always complained about um, Jesus' teaching, uh, particularly he hated the Sermon on the Mount and he hated Jesus' teaching on sexuality uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, on the subject of lust, he, he hated this bit about if your eye causes you to sin, 
pluck it out. And what Nietzsche said about that, there's a a long passage in Nietzsche, I'm not going to read it to you, but essentially he said anyone who could even say something like that, even in exaggeration, is so out of touch with the natural human needs that we have and who we are naturally that we shouldn't really even listen to anything else he says. We should just reject his teaching on the basis of the fact that these statements uh, just place Jesus as being someone who's just so out of touch with our human nature. Doesn't that sound like a, a story we're being told in the world today? Right? Just do what seems natural. Do what seems right. These, these harsh sayings in the Bible, these things that we see here, that's not something that you need to consider seriously. Those things aren't, aren't something you need to dig into. You can, you can have a more relaxed idea of, of Christian, your, your sexual ethic. Uh, and Nietzsche hated everything about humility, this call to humility that we have in the scriptures. Uh, Nietzsche uh, hated the elevation of the lowly in the Sermon on the Mount, and he quibbled with it, saying, uh, everything pitiful, everything suffering from itself, everything tormented by base feelings, the whole ghetto world of the soul is suddenly on top, and he was angry and frustrated that, that Jesus had turned this kingdom upside down, so he did everything he could to attack that Sermon on the Mount, because Nietzsche wanted us to be people who were unrestrained, people who would do whatever felt good to us, whatever seemed right to us. We could go our own way, and he tore down the scriptures to try to do it. Bertrand Russell was a a psychological and sexual hedonist. In his 1929 book, Marriage and Morals, he advocated for freedom from the Christian sexual ethic. Um, but part of his argument, and, and he unpacks it more in his book, Why I'm Not a Christian, and he was, like, he was a brutal person, um, but he, it was to dismiss Christ, but again, by teaching, uh, uh, by quibbling with his teaching. He says this, he says, there's one very serious defect to my mind in Christ's moral character, and that is that he believed in hell. Don't we hear a lot of people who don't want us to believe in hell? Or believe that Jesus believed in hell. We don't want us to wrestle with that. I do not feel myself, I do not myself feel that any person who is really profoundly humane can, can, believe, can believe in everlasting punishment. And he goes on, based on this argument about, uh, you know, how could Jesus possibly believe in hell? He says, I say quite deliberately that the Christian religion, as organized in its churches, has been and still is the principal enemy of moral progress in the world. Bertrand Russell, if you know anything of his story, him talking about moral progress, absolutely brutal. Looking at uh, a, a moral value that he was pushing forward and wanting to see happen in the world that just absolutely allowed for humans to do anything that they wanted, anything that they wanted. And we see this in thousands and thousands of different uh, writers, especially in the 1800s, late 1700s, as we approach what what we now experience through the 60s and and presently, uh, the sexual revolution that writer after writer after writer had to grapple with and tear down the scriptures in order to create a space for this uh, new way of looking at the world. And that way of quibbling with the scriptures is the same thing we do on the simple issues 
uh, that Jesus is calling us to wrestle with in our lives. Maybe he's calling us to some radical generosity. Maybe he's calling us uh, to obedience in terms of, uh, you know, going to a Bible study or a small group and we just don't want to go. Maybe it's dealing with a forgiveness issue. Uh, whatever it is, uh, we find a little way to undermine, uh, find a little way to quibble, and we begin to tear it down. Uh, we're self um, proclaimed high priests in our own lives. You know, it doesn't matter what you look at online, you might say to yourself. Uh, it's natural, it's instinctual. Jesus can't really have meant what he said about, you know, plucking out your eye if it causes you to sin, or, or if you lust, look lustfully at a woman you're committing adultery with her. That, that can't really be what Jesus meant. We've got to find a way that that piece of scripture doesn't mean what we think it means. Uh, the self-proclaimed high priest in your head says, uh, sex before marriage is fine, cohabitation before marriage, that's, that's just okay. That's all right. That uh, divorce is pretty normal these days. I'm sure Jesus didn't mean all that stuff in Matthew 19 uh, that says uh, that um, that says that the two are no longer or they are no longer two but one flesh therefore what God has joined together let no one se separate maybe when it comes to forgiveness right he can't possibly have mean that meant that bit about you know forgive so that you can be forgiven that, that's there must be some nuance there that we don't understand, you know, because I was really traumatized. Uh, that person really hurt me. I might be able to forgive them if I get an apology from them. We quibble. We wrestle with the scriptures all the time. He can't mean for me to give away so much of my possessions so I can invest myself in ministry and follow him. Surely he wants me to have some comforts in life. We quibble all the time. Jesus answers this. Um, he answers this. In verse 20, Jesus answered him. He said, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. You know, we so often, when we want something our way, and, and this is not to undermine your personal relationship with the Lord. This is not to challenge uh, the Holy Spirit speaking in your life. I believe that the Lord really speaks to us. But very often, uh, when we want something uh, to go our way, we listen to a little voice in our head and ask that voice to tell us that thing that we want to hear. Right? And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, why do you ask me? I'm not going to whisper you something that you want to hear. Ask them, because I've already said everything. I've already taught everything. It's written down. We, I mean, we do want to hear from the Holy Spirit. We do want to hear Jesus speaking to us. But unless we balance that, unless we anchor that in the Scriptures, unless we go to the Word, the things that the disciples wrote down about what Jesus taught, we can make ourselves hear anything in our heads that we want. We absolutely must be anchored in the scriptures in terms of our hearing from Jesus. We have to go to the book to see what he said. We have to go to the book and we have to wrestle it down. He doesn't have any secret teachings there. We have to dig in. We have to search. We have to say, what does that mean? Why did he say that harsh thing? What is he getting at? He, he means for me to be pure. He means for me to be holy. Uh, this, how, do I, how do I take this in and how do I 
change? How do I become transformed? Not how do I make the book say the thing I want the book to say or the voice in my head say the thing I want it to say. We have to go uh, with the moral questions or the struggles in our lives. How many of us like even like really in a faithful way dig into the scriptures when it comes to a tough decision? We don't go to the rational. We don't go to the book. We don't go to the Bible. We go to what we feel. But we've got this book. We've got 5,800 manuscripts within a very short time period of when the words were spoken. We have very few variants. They're all disclosed in your Bible. And we have extra biblical uh, sources that tell you that you can trust this thing. You can trust the witness of this thing. You can trust that the disciples... And Jesus' teaching are found in here, and you can follow him. And it's just fascinating the response then to Jesus' challenge. Go, talk to my disciples, figure it out. Everything I taught is there. Uh, what does it say? Dig into it. And the immediate reaction of the soldier is this. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by Jesus struck Jesus with his hand. Is that how you answer the high priest? And that's what happens in us too when we're challenged by the word of God as our emotions rise up and we push Jesus away. Our emotion trumps the word so often. Our emotion trumps the scriptures all the time. And that's what's happening in this story. That's the answer to that little high priest in our head, we, we support that little high priest in our head with our emotions and we push Jesus away. We push the word away. That's what goes on in our head when we're confronted with the challenge to study the word, to investigate, to uh, open up your Bible app, to open up Bible Hub, to, to learn about the Greek, to talk to your lame old pastor about the scriptures, uh, whatever it is, right? Emotion rises up and we want to hear the thing we want to hear and we push Jesus off. And we all know we've done this. And then Jesus answers the slap in this way. He says, and he lays an incredibly beautiful trap here. He says, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Go to it. Test it. Dig into it. And if you can find anything wrong in this book, publish it. Write a book yourself. Bear witness against this book. And you won't find something wrong here. You won't find something broken here. He says, he asks this question, if you find out it's right, if you find out you can trust what I've taught here, why do you strike me? What a powerful question for us when we encounter our resistance to the word of God. What in you is actually striking me? What in you is actually resisting it here? Why is this happening? Why is your emotion overriding what you know to be true? When we answer that question, 
where we're going to come is we're going to find our sin. We're going to find our brokenness. We're going to find our own will. He traps us, and, and we see it in Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. Why do you strike me? This book <laughs> will pierce to your core and show you why. It'll show us our sin. It'll show us our brokenness. So we need to grapple. We need to wrestle. We need to dig in. Uh, there's five other trials here. Um, the trial before Caiaphas, we have to deal with his sovereignty. And the trial before the Howell Council, we deal with our root of unbelief. And the trial before Pilate, we deal with our fear of man. And the trial before Herod, we deal with our hedonism and desire to be entertained. And the trial before Pilate, we have to deal with our self-sufficiency and our independence and our indifference. But at the root of all of them, and particularly here when we encounter the Word of God, we, we simply realize that it's our sin that resists the kingdom of God coming forward in us. And those two cryptic answers that are kind of repeated through the trial of Jesus that uh, really kind of give us hope. Because if I left this here just like, you know, we're all miserable sinners, like... Have fun with that. Go read the Bible. <laughs> you know, you're going to hate me, but that's okay. Uh, the Word of God is what it is. But, but there's something really beautiful in the text that I think we can see that really uh, helps us, that really encourages us, and that really builds something in us. And so I just want to hit these quickly. You know, throughout the trials, um, Jesus asked the question directly, are, are you the Son of God or are you... Uh, the king of the Jews. Um, it happens in Matthew 26, 64. It happens in Luke 22. It happens in Luke, or sorry, Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23. Um, but Jesus is before the Sanhedrin. He's before uh, the whole council. He's before Pilate. And they ask sort of, are you the one? I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the son of God in Matthew 26, 64. Jesus says simply, you know, you have said so. He doesn't say yes, and he doesn't say no. He says, you have said so. Very interesting response. Uh, he's asked it again directly, are you the son of God uh, before the whole council? Jesus says, you say that I am. Uh, before Pilate, uh, Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, you have said so. A fascinating answer. Uh, some of our uh, easier translations, like the New Living Translation, it just says, Jesus says, yes, I am. It's, that's just not what's in the Greek. Uh, in, in, the, in the Greek, Jesus uh, is using um, language that really just says, you say I am. You say I am. It's on your own authority. You're saying this right now. There's lots of different ways to maybe understand this uh, sort of cryptic and strange answer. 
But what most sort of commentators uh, do um, is they, they basically say, the very fact that you are asking me these questions, the very fact that you went to the garden, you trumped this whole thing up, that you placed me on trial, the very fact that you are angry, the very fact that you slapped me, the very fact that you struck me, the very fact that you are quibbling with the word, the very fact that you're challenging me at such a level tells me that you know exactly who I am. And so you need to be encouraged by that. Every time you encounter that inner struggle, that inner trial to follow and obey Jesus, every time you fight that fight, you should know that you're fighting that fight because deep down you know that you've encountered the authority of Jesus in your life. And that he has something to say to you. That he's standing there, and as we see from elsewhere in the scriptures, he's standing there under trial with you trying him because he has chosen to be there. He has chosen that moment with you to let you put him on trial, to be present to you, and to let the truth of who he is come out in that moment. And the other beautiful thing that we see in the text as we acknowledge his presence there, uh, a number of times uh, in Matthew 26, 63, uh, Matthew 27, 12, John 19, 10, uh, Luke uh, 29, or sorry, 23, 9, uh, Jesus is brought a, a false accusation about himself. He's, they try to tear him down. And it says this in, in the text, it says, uh, and he gave no answer. But Jesus remained silent. And in that silence, and this is what most theologians do, is they say he's actually fulfilling something in that silence. One, he's not going to dignify uh, the challenge. He's not going to dignify false accusations. He's not going to bother dealing with them. But Lane, author of uh, New uh, International Commentary in the New Testament, says this, When Jesus gives no answer, this can only be seen through the lens of Matthew 26, 56. Yet another thing that has taken place that the scriptures might be fulfilled. This can only point us to the messianic prophecy of Isaiah 53. And by this silence, we shall know him. Isaiah 53, beautiful messianic prophecy, reads like this. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off and out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people... Yet it was, I'm just skipping to verse 10, yet it was the will of God to crush him. He has put him to grief. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteousness, and he shall bear their iniquities. Because he has poured out his soul to death, 
and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. As we stand with Jesus in our minds, with Jesus on trial, in those moments when he stands there silent, he stands there pointing you to the reality that he bore your sin. That he bore that sin that you are confronting him with. That he is standing there in love. That he is standing there out of uh, uh, the most unimaginable sacrificial love for you. He is standing there. He is taking your slaps. He is standing there. He is taking your dancing. He is standing there. Uh, He is taking your rebellion and your insolence your uh, willingness to just diminish him so that you can have your way. He is standing there in silence as your Savior who loves you and who died for you. And in the middle of that trial, he wants relationship with you. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of Ottawa Valley Community Church, visit ovcchurch.ca.